I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus 24. We'll be looking at Exodus 24 this morning, verses 1 through 18. If you're following along in a pew Bible, that can be found on pages 64 and 65. Today we're concluding a section in Exodus that actually began way back in chapter 19. And you can even, if you have your Bibles open, you can flip back to 19 and see all that's been covered. I think it's helpful visually just to kind of get the lay of the land of what's taking place in this book. But back in chapter 19, the people came to Mount Sinai and God began to define his relationship with them as a people. He told them how he brought them out of Egypt on eagle's wings and he brought them to himself. And that if they obeyed him, they would be his treasured possession. That they would be a kingdom of priests to him and a holy nation. And so the people, upon hearing this way back in chapter 19, said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. They said they are ready and willing and interested in forming this covenant with the Lord who had delivered them from Egypt. And as you can see, as you kind of flip through those chapters, a lot happens after this initial acceptance of the idea of entering into covenant with the Lord. Moses had the people get ready in chapter 19 and to purify themselves and to do some washings because God was going to appear to them on the mountain and they had to get ready. And repeated warnings were given. If you touch the mountain, if you come too close to the mountain, you will surely die. And God comes to the mountain and his voice thunders forth with the 10 words, the 10 commandments. And at that point, after the people had heard these 10 commandments, they said to Moses, his voice is too intense for us. Can you speak to us instead of the Lord? And so what we've been looking at for the last several weeks is that God gave the rest of that covenant revelation, uh, those words he gave to Moses, uh, the various laws and case laws about how the people were to live as God's people. And we saw last week how God concludes his instruction by affirming the place that he has promised to take his people and the process by which they will go in order to get there and how little by little they will come to inhabit that promised land and enjoy God's blessings. And so this week, as we come to chapter 24, it's really the climax of what has been building so far. And it picks up with the Lord's closing instructions really to Moses on what to do next. And so as we look at our text, I just want to give you an outline of what it's going to do, and then I'll read it, and then we'll walk through it. But first we're going to see in verses 1 and 2 that God invites Moses and others to come up to the mountain. But they don't come up right away. Moses goes down and he goes through the covenant ceremony of ratifying or confirming the old covenant with God's people. And then to conclude it, those invited people come up um, to the mountain and they share a meal with God. 
And then in the final part of our chapter, verses 12 to 18, Moses then goes up again for 40 days, which sets the stage for what we'll be looking at next week and as we look ahead toward finishing the book. So that's kind of what's going on in this passage as you hear me read it. So I'm going to read Exodus 24, verses 1 to 18. Um, This is God's word. It says, Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and he threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction." So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud, Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. And Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Let's pray and ask our God's help as we consider this this glorious text this morning. Our Father in heaven, we have just read how your people gathered at that mountain, and they heard your voice. And we're reminded that as you call us to gather together as your people and as your word is preached, you speak to us. And we pray that by your Spirit's help, you would fill our hearts with faith. Help us to see the beauty of who you are and the relationship that you have formed with us through our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask that you would meet us in our need and in our weakness. Give us understanding. Give us faith. Give us endurance and strength. We ask that your spirit would illumine your word to us so that we can better see our Savior, Jesus Christ. 
It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, as we consider this passage this morning, I just kind of want to tell you the outline. I know there's a a blank sheet in your bulletin for taking notes if that's something that you like to do. Um, We will spend some time walking through the covenant ceremony itself, just unpacking what's taking place here, and then we'll consider two applications. So there will be three points. The first is the covenant ceremony. Uh, The second is consider the covenant blood. And then third, celebrate our covenant fellowship. And if you miss those, I'll repeat them as we go, but just want you to know where we're going this morning. So the first thing that we'll do is we'll consider the wonder of this covenant ceremony that's unpacked for us here in Exodus 24. The Lord concludes his covenant instruction to Moses up on the mountain with this invitation. Moses and 73 other people are to come up to the mountain. And these 73 others represent the people in various ways. But what we need to know is this is an amazing development in the story since up until now, Moses is the only one who's been able to go anywhere near this mountain and everyone else has been warned repeatedly not to touch it. But one thing that we see is at this point in redemptive history, there are gradations or levels of the experience of the presence of God. Did you see that there? Moses is able to go the closest, and then the elders and people who are going to become priests, Aaron and his oldest sons, and then the people who are further out. And this structure of gradations of God's presence from the most holy to the common is going to be seen later when we look at what happens in the tabernacle, but we see this structure shown to us even here on Mount Sinai. But this invitation is to a meal that will be the conclusion of the covenant ceremony with the people. And so the Lord sends out this invitation to Moses, and then Moses goes down the mountain to speak all these words of God's covenant. And verses 3 through 8 then show us the covenant ratification, the covenant ceremony that puts this covenant into effect. And so what we see is the covenant ceremony began with God's words. When Moses came down the mountain, verse 3 tells us he recited all of the words of the Lord to the people. I don't know how good your memory is, but it's pretty wild to realize he recited chapters 20 through 23 uh, to them uh, as the Lord, I think, empowered him to do so. I think they also were better at oral communication back then. Uh, But he recited all the words that the Lord has spoken. And then what did the people do? They affirmed that they will do all that the Lord has spoken. They assent to this covenant that's been held out to them. Now, a covenant that's this significant would not just remain an oral tradition, but Moses, verse 4 tells us, wrote down all of the words of the Lord, which then in verse 7 is called the book of the covenant. And so basically, again, chapters 20 to 23 of, of what we see. Well, next, the two parties of the covenant were represented for this ceremony. The next morning, Moses constructed an altar. And that altar will serve as the representation. It signifies God's presence in this covenant ceremony with them. And then probably around the altar, Moses put up 12 stone pillars, 
which were to signify the 12 tribes of Israel. So you have the parties of the covenant represented there symbolically for this ceremony as God and the people gather together. And then there are covenant sacrifices. This is no small process. And so what we read is that young men helped to obtain and slaughter the sacrifice of the oxen that were required for this ceremony. And the text tells us that two types of sacrifices are offered. You have the burnt offerings and peace offerings. And it's significant for us to just pause for a moment and remember what these offerings signify. The burnt offerings, uh, in them, the whole animal is consumed. The ox is slaughtered and then it is offered up in the fire. And these burnt offerings uh, are to atone for the people's sin they put forth on vivid display this principle that God was showing, something must die in order for me to be able to live. And that's what the burnt offerings signify as the animal is consumed. But then secondly, there are peace offerings or fellowship offerings. And in these offerings, part of the animal is consumed, some of the fat is burnt, but some of the meat is set aside and cooked by the fire and then eaten by the worshipers. And so these peace offerings, they signified the peace and fellowship between God and the people. And as the sacrifice goes up, God, in a sense, symbolically eats it with them, and then the people themselves eat part of the sacrifice as well. It's, it's a sense of sharing a meal in fellowship symbolized in a sacrifice. And so what we have here at this point in the ceremony, after these oxen have been slaughtered and offered in these various ways, we have the people who have washed and purified themselves. They are now forgiven through sacrifice and they are welcomed into fellowship with God. There's a sense in which now the formalities of the ceremony um, really play out. The blood of these sacrifices has a really important role to play in this ceremony, further than just when we normally uh, offer sacrifices in the Old Testament. You notice that half the blood of the sacrifices was thrown or sprinkled against the altar, splashed upon the altar there, which again, remember, signified God's presence there among the people. The other half is saved until after the people, in a sense, make their vows. And that's what we read about next. Moses took what he had written down. He took the book of the covenant and he read it for all the people. This is the second time they're hearing, in a sense, chapters 20 through 23 of what they are committing to. And again, after hearing the covenant in verse 7, we find that they affirmed it for a third time, once in chapter 19 and these two in chapter 24. This time they said at the end of verse 7, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And just to make sure everything's understood, they say, and we will be obedient. I think they were very well-intentioned, and I, I appreciate their desire to enter into God's covenant. If you've read ahead at all, it is kind of hard to hear those words a little bit. Uh, their obedience doesn't last all that long. But in this ceremony, they are pledging 
commitment to this covenant that the Lord is making with them. And so with that said, with their third affirmation, the covenant is confirmed with them. Moses takes the other half of the blood and he threw it or sprinkled or splashed it among the people. And as he did, he said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. And that really brings to a conclusion this ratification of the covenant. As you see, at the end of it, both parties have been sprinkled and are bound by the same blood together. And that blood is sealing their solidarity in it that if either party breaks their word, the curses of the covenant will come upon them. And so that's some of what's taking place there. It's, it's a rather solemn ceremony up until this point, isn't it? But it was also celebratory. And that's seen with what comes next. There was a covenant meal that marks out the conclusion of what's taking place here. In verses 9 through 11, those who had been invited by the Lord went up to the mountain. And they were, again, representing the people overall, 70 elders and the future priests, And what happened there? The Lord had said that they will come up and worship him. And what we find out is is it's, it's expressed as having a meal in God's very presence. Verse 11 tells us, there they ate and drank on the mountain in the presence of God. Now, meals were a significant part of covenant ceremonies. We get glimpses of this when we have wedding receptions, right? When you come to a wedding, there's a covenant ceremony. New reality is is born, in a sense, as this couple is now husband and wife. And those who are parties of the covenant, the, the families and the friends who have served as witnesses, they all gather for a meal. And that's not really just a time to have a party. It's also a time to celebrate together this new reality that has taken place through the covenant. Well, we see this on a a much more um, intimate and intentional level with this meal. Covenant meals signified this union and fellowship that now existed between the parties who had made the covenant. Because to share a meal in the Old Testament context was what we saw in our Meals with Jesus series. It was to show your unity between the parties. And so really what's happening here is this amazing acting out of what gets signified over and over again in the fellowship offering where God symbolically shares a meal with his people. Here they actually do this on the mountain. And if it weren't enough for God to just invite 74 people up to his mountain for a meal, what's even more amazing in this text is that the Lord makes himself visible. Verse 10 has these amazing words. They, or at the end of verse 9, they went up. And then verse 10, and they saw the God of Israel. We read that and it's just full stop. Our jaws just drop open if we've been reading from Genesis 1. Throughout the Bible, we learn of the overwhelming presence of God. When post-fall people, after Adam and Eve in the garden and after sin takes place, when post-fall people are in God's presence, they are undone by being near him. 
just before, the people had just heard God from the mountain and they begged Moses to have God stop talking to them because it was too much for them to bear. Later, Moses will ask to see God's glory and the Lord will reply, man shall not see me and live. Now, I don't know how you hear that. We may think of that something as something negative about God. That's kind of what I first think of when I hear that. We can't see God or else we're consumed. It makes me think of like radioactivity or something bad that you want to stay away from, right? But when it comes to beholding the presence of God, it's the exact opposite. It's not because there's anything bad or anything negative about God. It's because he's so sheerly and purely good and wonderful and beautiful and pure and holy that people like us can't bear to be in his presence, both because of our sin and also because of our state of fallenness. Our bodies are not yet fitted for the glory of being again in the presence of God. And so what happens here, though, as the Lord comes into covenant with his people and they are cleansed by the blood of the covenant, they are able to be in his presence, even his visible presence, and enjoy fellowship with him. Verse 11 reassures us that this was all okay. Nobody dies, it says in verse 11. He did not lay a hand upon them. They finished out the whole meal, meaning this, that the Lord manifested himself in such a way among his people that there was a visible representation of him without consuming them. And we get a description there of what they saw. And as with all of the theophanies in Scripture, it's just a fancy word for saying God appearings, uh, as with all of these God appearings, the language is fuzzy, right? It, we're grasping at words to try and describe the wonder of what was seen. And, and as this is described here in our text, all that we get a glimpse of, in a sense, are his feet and what are below them. They, in a sense, see a form of feet and something below the feet. Perhaps it's because the glory was so splendid that they couldn't even lift their eyes any higher, or perhaps just the sheer glory and radiance above what they saw they couldn't see through. We're not really sure. But under his feet, they saw a brick or a pavement that's brilliantly clear and sapphire blue like the heavens themselves. Later in the scriptures, Ezekiel will get a heavenly vision And what he sees is God's throne, and it is sapphire blue. And so it's it's interesting. It's possible that what they're actually seeing there appearing on the mountain is this manifestation of the Lord himself seated on the throne as he makes himself visible among them. As we read this, our minds are filled with so many questions, aren't they? Um, I could go on and on about questions. But what we need to see is this is absolutely amazing what's taking place. You see that for the first time since the Garden of Eden, God's people are enjoying his presence in this way. It's an incredible milestone. He has come all throughout history and spoken and revealed himself, but here they get a taste of, 
of what their hearts had been longing for since Genesis 3, of God dwelling with his people and having a meal with them. And so this meal brings to completion the covenant ratification that had begun back in chapter 19. It goes without saying, really, this is a major high point in the biblical story. God has brought them out of Egypt and now entered into covenant with them as his people, as a nation at Mount Sinai. And then the last part of our text, which we won't examine in as much detail, but it sets the stage for what will come. God invites Moses into further glory. We assume that Moses went back down and he made these arrangements with the elders. If there's a problem, here's what you're supposed to do. And then he and Joshua ascended the mountain again. And God's glory was dwelling there on the mountain in cloud and in fire. And and what comes back to our minds is the pillar of cloud and fire that had led the people. When God's presence dwells on that mountain, the cloud and fire are combined there, showing his glory in this vivid way. And after six days of either journeying up the mountain or waiting at the mountain, on the seventh day, Moses was able to enter the glory cloud presence of God himself. And during Moses' 40-day stay on the mountain, the Lord will give him stone tablets that will be covenant copies of what has just taken place. And he will also give him plans for the tabernacle so that this mountain presence of God can be with the people wherever they go. And that really brings us to what we'll study in the rest of the book and the conclusion at the end of the book of really another high point of God being with his people, but I won't spoil the ending just yet. So that's some of what's taking place in chapter 24. What an amazing passage, isn't it? This covenant confirmed between God and people. But what are we to learn from this passage? I want us to consider two applications as we think about some of these themes. So the the second point of our sermon, the first application, is to consider the covenant blood. Consider the covenant blood. I have to confess that when I read this passage and was studying it, um, one of the things that really stood out to me, and maybe it stood out to you, is the bloodiness of this text. There's blood all over the place. It's really messy. Oxen are being slaughtered. Blood is being thrown on an altar, thrown on the people. And I guess the confession part of it is not that I saw that, but what it did inside of me in thinking about it. That there's an aversion inside me to that. It seems kind of gross. It seems a little bit um, cruel. in in a lot of ways. And we picture these people coming away from this covenant ceremony with blood splattered all over them. And it makes you say, what kind of a God is this who sets up a covenant in this way? And so what I'm tempted to do is downplay this, right? That this is just some old covenant thing, the, the bloodiness of what's taking place. But then I was reading in Rosaria Butterfield's book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And she made this short statement that just set me back and and made me realize what was going on in my heart. But she said, grace is bloody. Grace is bloody. And I realized this isn't just some old covenant relic 
of the bloodiness of God's relationship with us. And in fact, it's actually no accident that our Lord Jesus, when he institutes our covenant renewal ceremony, the Lord's Supper, he made it clear that he is confirming the new covenant by his blood. You remember what Moses said, what we, what we just heard. He said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you. You know what Jesus says in Matthew 26? This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. You see, and what we realize as we stop and as we hear the testimony of Scripture is that we are a people more marked out by blood than those Israelites who went back to their tents with it on their skin and on their clothes. And so I want us to consider in in this application point three aspects of the the significance of covenant blood, both for them and for us, especially as we think of it through the lens of the new covenant and what's affirmed to us in the Lord's Supper. The first thing to consider is that the covenant blood calls us to consider the weightiness of our sin. The covenant blood calls us to consider the weightiness of our sin. There's a sense in which the bloodiness of this text should be troublesome to us. There's a sense in which that impulse of of that recoiling of life being taken and blood being shed is reflecting a reality of the weightiness of what's going on. The shedding of blood in the Old Covenant and as we continue on throughout Scripture, it is not an arbitrary thing. It's important for us to realize that God is not cruel or just doesn't care about animals and wants them to die or that he likes sacrifices because he's kind of gross. Um, No, instead the blood shows the weightiness of sin. As these people went to this ceremony and they heard and they saw and they smelled these sacrifices, it reminded them that something is so wrong in the world that these animals have to die before they can come near God. And the Bible then connects that shedding of blood in sacrifice with dealing with sin. Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so what we find out is we're not crazy. (laughs) There's something so wrong in the world that things have to die to even contain the significance of what's taking place. And then what the scriptures go on to show us is that at the root of what's wrong in the world and at the root of what's so wrong in our hearts is sin. And the shedding of blood points to that ultimate problem, that sin is rebellion against God. Sin twists all the things that God has made good. Sin, as we participate in it, it destroys the very things we were called to cultivate and protect as God's image bearers. And so when we hear in this covenant ceremony of all this blood and of all this death, what it reminds us of is the weightiness of what has gone wrong, of the sin that has entered the world and death through sin. And it's not just a reminder of that in the abstract, but it's our own sin as well. 
as the people that day heard those sacrifices, part of what they knew is not just that things were wrong in the world, but that things were wrong in their hearts and that blood had to be shed for God to be able to draw near in any sort of a covenant with his people. And while we don't have blood sprinkled upon us Sunday after Sunday, when we take the cup in the Lord's Supper, part of what we feel is the weight of our sin. There's a sense in which we recoil over the thought, not that an animal has died, but that the sinless blood of God was poured out to deal with sin and our sin. We feel the weightiness of the sin, of our sin, as we consider the blood. But that's not all that the blood conveys, thankfully. The covenant blood also calls us to celebrate the wonder of God's grace. As those people, I I just keep picturing these people going back to their tents after this ceremony with blood on their faces and staining their clothes, thinking, what were they thinking when they went home? But as they went home that day, they not only felt the weightiness of their sin, but they felt the wonder of the fact that God had made a way through the blood that he could enter covenant with them. Through the blood of those oxen, he could pass over their sins for a time in anticipation of the greater sacrifice that was to come. And he could give them forgiveness and draw them near in fellowship to himself through the blood. And so also for us, when we take the cup of the covenant, of the new covenant in Christ's blood, we realize that even though we deserve eternal death for our sin, part of what that blood says to us is that God has made a way because another has died instead. And so we celebrate the wonder of God's grace. We are partakers in the blood of the sinless Son of God which doesn't point ahead any longer, but grants free and full forgiveness to us through faith forever. And so the blood reminds us of the weight of sin and the wonder of God's grace that God has made a way. And then third, the covenant blood also calls us to celebrate the work of Christ. The blood calls us to celebrate the work of Christ. One major difference between what we read today and what the cup says to us is that the blood was not only a reminder for those people of God's promises in the covenant, it was also a sign of their own promises. The blood to them as they went home that day was reminding them of what they had said all that the Lord has said we will do. And even though their redemption was given fully and freely by God's grace in this old covenant structure, they were covenanting to obey God, to enjoy the blessings of that covenant in the land. But do you realize as we look to the blood of the new covenant, it also is a sign of what God has promised, that, that blood upon the altar in the sense of, of his part and all of the blessings of eternal life that he has covenanted to us. 
But do you realize that that blood is not a reminder of what we are obligated to do? But that blood is a reminder to us of what Christ has already done. Our side of the covenant has been fully fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who has completed all that the Father gave him to do. He is the one who could cry out, it is finished as his very blood was being poured out for us. And so as we partake of the cup in the Lord's Supper, it not only assures us that a new covenant has been made, but that through Christ's blood, that new covenant has been completed and all of its benefits are received by us not because of our works, but simply by faith in the one who merited all of that on our behalf. And now, out of gratitude for Christ's law-keeping life and sin-paying death, we are now given new hearts to obey the things that God is calling us to do as his people. And so, as we think about the blood, the people went home that day confident of the covenant because blood was splattered upon them. And the Lord's Lord's Supper calls us to an even greater confidence because we are marked by an even greater blood that has been shed for us. And I just find it fascinating that the author to the Hebrews says that we can confidently draw near and then listen to his language with hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. You hear the the confidence in drawing near. Why? Because that blood has been sprinkled, not upon our exterior, but right down to the very heart, that our consciences are clear because Christ's blood has been shed for us. And so the second point was to consider the covenant blood. And then finally, as we close with our second application, point three, celebrate our covenant fellowship. I'm not sure how Exodus 24 strikes you, but when I first read it, my, the, the first thing that I feel is distance from God. It strikes me as impersonal, standoffish, maybe a little bit strange. Yeah, God's coming near, but whoa, he's up on a mountain and you can't even bear to go near it. And if you touch it, you will die. Um, theologically, that's called God's transcendence, right? It's, it's how other he is from us. And we see these things like the cloud and the fire and don't touch the mountain. It's good not to lose sight of the transcendence of God that we hear in Exodus 24, because we can be tempted to have low views of God that make him just like a genie or some lonely old man in the sky. And Exodus 24 really corrects that understanding. But if we consider this passage within the entire storyline of Scripture, what stands out is God's coming near. If you were to ask an ancient Near Eastern reader Um, or hearer to, to hear Exodus 24 and you said, what stands out to you about this God of Israel? What they would have said is, what kind of a God comes this close to people? The first man and the first woman were near to God in the garden, but then remember they were driven out because of sin. 
But the storyline of Scripture says that ever since Genesis 3, we hear chapter after chapter of a God initiating a relationship with his people, revealing himself, moving toward them, making a way for relationship with him again. And if you think of those people going home that day with the blood on their faces, or you think of those people, those elders coming down from that mountain, what would have been on their minds is transcendence and glory for sure, but also the wonder of this God who draws near to covenant with them, who becomes visible to them, and who eats with his people. What kind of a God shows up to have a fellowship meal with lowly, sinful people? What kind of a God invites Moses to come up even further into his glory on the mountain. And so also, as we come to the Lord's Supper, we're reminded of this fellowship heart of our God. He's not merely come down to the mountain, but as we heard in our scripture reading this morning, in the Lord Jesus, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Through Jesus, the invisible God became visible to us. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And Jesus came not just so that we could see God's glory in him, but so that we could be brought into God's glory. No longer at various levels of access, whether that's on the mountain or in the temple and tabernacle, but do you realize that as we gather together in the Lord's Supper, part of what it proclaims to us is that by the Spirit, we all come to the same table closer than Moses even came to the Lord himself. And not for 40 days and 40 nights, but forever. And so every week, we're called to celebrate our covenant fellowship with this God and with one another. And as the bread and the cup are in our hands and we take them in, part of what we ask ourselves is, what kind of a God invites us week after week to worship him? What kind of a God reveals himself and speaks to us week after week in his word? What kind of a God makes himself visible to people like us through his son? What kind of God calls us to have a weekly fellowship meal with him through the Lord's Supper? And that weekly fellowship meal is really just a foretaste of this eternal banquet that he wants us to share in his presence. And so we celebrate this covenant fellowship that we have with God through Jesus' blood. So these ceremonies, the one that we read today and then the one that we are about to celebrate in the Lord's Supper, They show us a God who desires fellowship with us and who has secured it through the blood of our Savior. What a great and awesome God. Let's pray and give him thanks. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, which gives us us glimpses by faith of the wonder of being in your presence. We thank you that through the work of Christ, This morning, even as we sit here in our weakness, in our imperfection, awaiting glory, 
that we are actually experiencing what it means to come to the heavenly Mount Zion. And by your Spirit's work, you are giving us a foretaste of the relationship that we already now have with you through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you would help us to better know and appreciate and celebrate the wonder of how you have come to us through the blood of the new covenant, through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.